Hello, this is Mike Harbath, and another Shoot the Moon podcast for this week in December 2020. Today we're going to be talking about how to build a target list of sellers, if you're a buyer, and then how to approach those companies that aren't for sale to have a dialogue about a potential combination with your business, whether that be a merger or an acquisition. Uh, and as usual, I have my partner, Ryan Barnett, on the call with us uh, to uh, share his perspectives as well. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, Mike. A pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, we spend a lot of time with our buyer side clients really identifying who and uh, what they should be targeting and really why. So today, I kind of want to have a dialogue about how we can start to build the, uh, the right lists here and uh, get the right thing. So Mike, just want to start it off when... When we talk to clients, the, the most important thing we have to figure out is that technology and strategic fit, and then the financials kind of fit after that. Uh, really, when we start to look at, you know, why, why would someone start to consider an M&A project at all? You know, what kind of objectives should they have, and what are the biggest things someone should start to look at? Well, I think, you know, if you're contemplating growing through acquisition, which if you've followed us at all, you know that we're big proponents of that strategy as a way to augment your growth. As a matter of fact, there's been you know lots of study that studies that say you leave about 50% of your growth potential on the table if you don't have an active and forward-looking uh, buy-side M&A initiative inside your firm. And you know, as you're thinking about growth, uh, I think it's important to understand that you know you need to have the momentum and systems and processes in place to be growing organically and have a healthy business before you should entertain this concept of growing through acquisition. I think it's probably a false pretense to say, hey, we're going to go, you know, because our growth is stalled, we're going to go buy a company so we can grow. Um, you know, that that's challenging on a lot of fronts because you're, the, the business that you acquire will start to look a lot more like your business from a um, from a sort of metrics and operations perspective once you acquire it. And so, you know, you may not be achieving the objectives of your business uh, goals if you haven't kind of cleaned up, cleaned up your own house and sort of have some good velocity and organic growth, um, you know, mechanisms working. But beyond that, I think you have to look at, you know, the strategic fit. Uh, does this deal get us to where we want to get towards our broader strategic goals faster? Um, that's the business case behind, you know, buying a company. Or can you get to a place, you know, together that you can't get apart? That's probably the holy grail of M&A where you've got a great opportunity of achieving some, um, you know, capitalizing on a new market or a new service line offering or, you know, a new geography or a new vertical or whatever it might be um, by coming together and extending um, extending the business through that combination. I think if you can check the strategy box, which is, hey, this really lines up, at least at least from a public view, uh, strategically, then you want to quickly begin to think about, is it a business that's a size that you can acquire or merge with um, based on you know some relatively broad uh, categories of valuation? Do I have the capacity to do that transaction? And I think if those two things line up, then they can at least make, uh, uh, you know, they can make a suspect list. And that's really where, you know, we would begin starting on this process. 
Sure. I think one of the things that we've noticed, especially of late, when, when people engage into a, a mindset that they're going to go acquire a company, uh, the first thing they think of is just the rapid growth. And they don't necessarily take a step back and say, well, why do we want that rapid growth and how can we achieve that um, through an acquisition? Uh, they don't kind of put the puzzle pieces together. They just say, hey, we got money uh, available or I can go raise money. And it seems like we'd be better together. And in reality, sellers in this market are getting so many calls and so many uh, propositions that money and a liquidation of that loan is not enough to, to bring them to the table. So buyers have to be a bit smarter about you know, why are they really doing this? It's not just not the chase of the deal or the um, just become bigger. It has to really become something more that aligns strategically. And that alignment could be uh, increasing the resources or availability to clients. It could be adding service lines. It could be uh, adding um, sales capacity or marketing capacity. Uh, but having that why to start out really starts to narrow out down the list um, where, uh, where if you have too broad of a mandate and too broad of a, of a, of a reason for buying of simply, I just want to grow, it's it's hard to get that project uh, up and running uh, successfully. Yeah, I I totally agree, and I think you have to sort of begin with the end in mind, right? So, you know, most entrepreneurs that are IT services business owners um, do eventually want to have a liquidity event if they built their business, and you know, because you're in acquisition mode doesn't mean that you're not thinking about some future liquidity event or selling your business. Um, and I think this is just another stepping stone on that journey. And you need to think clearly about, you know, what is that exit strategy? You want to build a $10 million firm, 20, 50, 100 million, 500 million, whatever the number is, um, before you make the decision to exit. Uh, it could be a $2 million firm, you want to exit, $5 million firm, you want to exit. But if acquisition is going to be part of your strategy, um, it has to be. Uh, the full complement of opportunity. Now, we're not huge believers in fixer-uppers. There's folks that like to buy companies and turn them around. Um, we think there's challenges with that. Um, certainly, the uh, there's more risk. Uh, there's typically a lower price point, but there is more risk. And um, you just have to understand if you're and in, in be confident in your ability to turn around a business um and what's involved with turning it around and the investment required and skills required to do that um otherwise the you know it's not a foregone conclusion that you're going to get to your financial goals with that deal um you may be in a situation where you don't get to the return rate you're expected or you may even lose money on that deal uh i think it's just really important to be uh go in eyes wide open uh, we generally think it's better to buy a business that's running pretty well, that's profitable, that's growing, um, one that you can bring additional uh, resources to to enhance that uh, growth and synergy. And again, you know, come together with the one plus one equals three. Sure. So, so if we start to dig into some of the criteria that a company should consider, uh, let's start with the, with the top level of just geography. Uh, when you put together, when a company considers an acquisition, you know, how, how should they start to think about geography? And has COVID changed that? And has remote work kind of changed the ability to acquire someone for uh, today than 
uh, was different perhaps a year or two years ago? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we used to say that a short, you know, a long drive or a short flight was kind of where you should think about acquiring a company, particularly if it's your first acquisition, uh, predominantly because uh, you want to be able to be there, right? You want to be able to get there. You want to be able to meet the people. You want to be able to facilitate integration activities uh, and sort of shepherd that opportunity uh, forward. We, we find that uh, it, that generally that recommendation is still true today, um, but certainly COVID has changed the way people work and think, and you know they're working f remote for the most part. Some of your businesses have been operating remote and doing business over broad geography for a long time. Uh, some have not, right? And I think it's somewhat situational. Uh, you're going to need to think about um, what you're comfortable with as a business owner and, you know, what you want to do. Some people are very comfortable working, um, you know, throughout the U.S. and Canada or internationally. And, you know, certainly buying a company uh, farther away from their uh, primary business location. Um, it's logical that that would be an easier, easier endeavor for them. Um, likewise, there's folks that don't really think of their business that way or it's much more geographically centric. Uh, and I think that, you know, long drive short flight rules would certainly apply in that case. Yeah, we've certainly seen a, a switch away from people acquiring simply in their own geography or zip code or, or area code. And I think that that certainly helps in many activities is that uh, it's very likely that you know everyone in your current market. Uh, and uh, uh, you are perfect. You think you may know everyone. Uh, what we typically find is that uh, we're able to unearth dozens more firms and even a geography than uh, a client would look at to, to start. But I think your advice is solid. It's starting to look out on a farther horizon or long, longer horizon uh, it allows uh, flexibility in getting the deal done. And uh, kind of so geography, you know, it, it's a, it is a big thing, but I would encourage anyone listening to this that you don't necessarily have to be limited by someone's office. Uh, I'd much better be engaged with the technology and the people and figure out how to interact, especially in, a, in, the, in the virtual world that we've become so much more used to today. Uh, switching gears, let's talk about size for a bit. So if we if figure out where you're going to acquire someone, the, kind of the next thing that we think about is just how big. And Mike, how, how big should a company be? How, many, how much can a company bite off? probably one of our most common questions that we get. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this is a guideline, not a rule. So what I would tell you is that typically you can afford to take uh, and acquire a business about half your size, uh, both from a sort of a capital and capitalization perspective, but also from much more importantly, from a risk perspective. Uh, M&A comes with risk. Uh, there's some associated risk along with the deal, both financially and and probably, um, you know, strategically and, and a risk of distraction, right, as you're integrating the business. So um, it's important to understand that. Uh, and the larger the business gets, you know, up to your size or even larger than your, your current size, um, those risks increase um, and they may be untenable. Now, with that said, we've certainly had individuals buy, um, you know, fairly sizable businesses and uh, we've represented them and they've come in and run them very successfully and done subsequent acquisitions and, 
you know, not only grown those businesses from where they have acquired them to, but, um, you know, had have had um, great success along the way. Um, so it certainly is possible. I would just say as a guideline and a general rule of thumb, you know, a company about half your size should be a pretty good target. Sure. And I think the, the other thing to consider is that it's going to take work. Uh, well, let's look at the other way. Should a company look at a, doing a deal of a small company? So if you're a, a $20 million company, should you buy a $2 million company? Yeah, you sure could. Um, I think that, and we've seen plenty of deals like that, that augment capability or geography um, and provide a stepping stone for that larger firm uh, to scale. That formula has been pretty successfully implemented um, by a variety of our clients uh, where they're a much larger company and their comfort zone is to, you know, you can call it a roll up, if you will, or buy a bunch of companies that are a tenth their size um, or smaller. Um, and and that has given them much greater coverage. It, it's the ability to bring a much more mature process um, and particularly sales and marketing model um, to a company that may not have been that mature uh, in any of the areas of business or particularly in sales and marketing where they can you know, apply a much uh, richer process and ultimately help scale that business once they acquire it much more quickly. Um, so there is merits in looking at a strategy that's much more, um, um, you know, buying up or quote unquote rolling up a variety of small firms. And that that works exceptionally well, uh, too. Typically, the companies that do that are buying more than one company. Um, it's not like they're going out to do the big bang and, hey, we're going to buy a company that's, you know, half our size or more and do one deal and that's it. Uh, they're typically companies that have a very... Um, proactive and ongoing um, acquisitive strategy of, of buying those smaller firms. Sure. Yeah, it's an interesting balance. Uh, when you're trying to get a deal done, uh, the due diligence and the work of a deal um, can feel somewhat similar for a large deal or a small deal. So I can certainly understand why someone's going to try to bite off as much as they can chew. At the same time, uh, that role of strategy we have seen to be effective. Uh, I think it is difficult, as, as some of the smaller companies that we've seen in the marketplace, uh, that maturity uh, is it can be used you know, for you, but it also is a, it's just harder to figure out what's in the company. So typically, we're not seeing a fully baked out set of books. We're not seeing perhaps sales and marketing activities. But you may see some brilliance in technology and someone who's just trying to get to the right spot. So. Um, can see where some of the there's really some some gems uh, hiding amongst a, a lot of uh, digging. Now, one thing when you're looking at it both ways, if you're if you're trying to run your own acquisition strategy, um, I wouldn't spend a ton of time trying to digitally figure out a revenue. So uh, you know, take an approach where you can uh, take a look at their employee count and find a, a revenue per employee that's typical, and apply that. Um, you're really not going to find out a true revenue uh, or employee size until you actually talk to someone. And that can be very tricky to do by yourself. Uh, that's where a, a third party advisors, it brings a lot of value to the equation because we can talk to someone and understand size, strategic fit, and, and uh, such through a qualification call. And that qualification call is much harder to do if you're, you're, you're targeting themselves. So if we understand kind of where they're at and how big they're at, the other question I get we get we get oftentimes in size 
is uh, actually detail size. And I'd love to, to get your perception like on how do how do we factor in a deal size and perhaps even deal structure and how much should should that go into you know starting your acquisition process? Well, I think you have to look at the capacity that you have to do a deal, right? And that capacity uh, is important. And, and some of that has to do with your comfort level associated with um, the size of the transaction. For example, um, you know, you generally should have the capacity to do a deal about up to about half your size, but you may be uncomfortable uh, doing a deal like that. So when you begin to look at a company, you can know that typically that deal is going to transact for, you know, probably up to one times revenue if they're a typical company. Um, you know, they hovers anywhere from 80% to about 120% of revenue. Now, there certainly is exceptions for highly profitable firms um, or ones that are, you know, not very profitable. There's exceptions. But in general, that's kind of the range I would expect from a planning number perspective. And so if you back into a revenue number by headcount and begin to look at kind of average revenue for headcount for the type of industry, type of uh, IT services business you are, uh, and then you begin to sort of bracket the revenue range, you know, 80 to 120% of revenue, that's about what that deal is going to cost. And then I think you need to think about how you're going to fund it, right? Are you going to use bank financing, which we're kind of pro on uh, a debt financing. We think it's a, a good strategy. There's a couple of reasons why that's a good strategy. Um, one, because there tends to be quite a bit of money available right now. Um, you know, banks are uh, open to lending on these types of deals. There's some good SBA programs if you're a, a smaller firm um, that you can leverage. And we think that um, certainly, you know, that's the kind of amortization uh, you, know, you want to try to get up to probably a 10-year amortization on these deals, which helps you uh, certainly cash flow and have the business be accretive to profit as you're uh, looking at doing a deal. You know, so I, I think you have to think about, you know, how are you going to fund the deal and what are you comfortable funding? You know, you're funding the deal off of retained earnings from your cash flow or on your balance sheet. Are you getting some leverage, you know, through a loan? Um, or are you going to, you know, look at some sort of equity financing uh, to help you? Uh, you know, we're, equity financing, you need to understand that it's exceptionally expensive financing. Um, when you look at the bigger picture, uh, typically it's not uh, a bad idea to get equity financing. We just think that uh, it can be very, very expensive in the end. And so, uh, you know, if you're able to finance a transaction, particularly one of your first transactions with debt, that's probably the right way to go. Technically called, I guess, a leveraged buyout, because um, that's exactly what it is. You're getting leverage in order to buy out that firm. Um, and I would, I would recommend that approach. So, but you have to have some level of comfort on what level of risk you're willing to take. And kind of how you want to approach that risk. If you use those general rules of thumb to size up the deal from a value perspective, it can give you a pretty good idea what kind of capitalization you're going to need to do the deal. And the, the next area we typically focus on when, when guiding someone through this process is, is a uh, strategy and technology fit. And, and, and 
we spend a lot of time really digging into to what someone's looking for. And that goes from the the area that they'd like to be in. So it's essentially a category, whether it might be another managed service provider or, or an application developer. Uh, but even then, we're, we're trying to really understand the, the strategic fits on all the way down to uh, kind of more specific technology or partner ecosystems. Uh, it's hard to give general advice on technology fit because it is so varied. And it, uh, I guess the biggest encouragement I'd say is that take a look at what either supplements your your current um, your current stack or is able to uh, or you're able to fill gaps when looking at it. Mike, anything kind of big on a technology or strategy fit that someone should consider um, that uh, that could help our our buy side clients out? Well, I certainly think you know you have to understand sort of the uh, you know, your, your specialization clearly in, in your area of technology <clears throat> and how an acquisition might fit into that. Sometimes you can get a line extension, as we call it, where it adds some sort of capability, technology capability to your business that is a logical thing that you could sell into your existing customer base um, that would allow you to attract more uh, clients through that combination. You know, that's, we often use this term one plus one equals three. That's a one plus one equals three sort of test, right? Um, one in which you can easily apply that. Likewise, there's just a, you know, acquiring clients, right? Um, you're looking at acquiring clients in a new geography um, that are, you know, through the same types of technologies you guys offer. Um, that may not be quite as strategic, however, uh, depending on your goal to cover off a particular geography or have more customers within a particular with a particular vendor uh, slant, for example, you may get. Uh, we've done acquisitive projects uh, where by acquiring more customers, you get to a higher or preferred level with a vendor, um, and you know that was a that's a specific mandate, one that people want to pursue. Uh, because if they do that right, um, then they can, um, uh, you know, get to a, for example, higher reimbursement rate with a vendor if they're representing, you know, NetSuite or Microsoft or someone. So there's certainly some opportunities through just being larger that may make some sense strategically. And then there's the, you know, the broader strategic argument that might be, hey, we're looking for. A function, some functional roles. You know, some people you call this term "acu hires," where they're looking to buy a business that has, let's say, a very strong sales and marketing function. If they're not strong in that area, or a very strong, um, you know, technical leadership. If they have some gaps um, in their, um, you know, sort of in their business, so they say, "Look, let's look to acquire a business that brings us great talent to solve some of the challenges that we have." Uh, in our overall business. And I think, you know, all these areas kind of coalesce around the target profile of what uh, would be an ideal prospect. We often use the term ideal prospect profile. Um, we think you need to take the time to really understand that, right? What are the, all of the attributes of the ideal prospect? Um, because, you know, in many ways, you're not going to know whether that target is an ideal prospect. You'll have your suspicions, but you won't know until you actually talk to them. And so being able to, you know, spend the time to till the soil to get the right 
list built um, and then manage the outreach, um, you know, are all things that are critically important and kind of getting this list built. Yeah, I agree. And it's in, um, it's probably the, it's very, the start of everything. And if you, ha you have to have the, the, light, the right list built in order to, to have any conversation. So uh, having kind of that size technology strategy in line is, is, is critical. The, and those are mandatory. You have to have those done. I think some of the nice to haves start to be look at things like um, uh, vertical market, where you, you're looking for a target list where your prospects have some kind of concentration of a vertical market. That might be very important. And then it also might be uh, some other bonus criteria of of uh, perhaps tenure of, of sales team or management team. Uh, and, and on that, Mike, what what's what should a team expect for a management team uh, when they're when they're looking at a company? Uh, it varies from the board and what's out there, but should you expect to? What should a company, I guess, look for? Uh, and we kind of break this down into leaning in or uh, selling out. Walk us through what the options are there for management teams. Yeah, certainly, you know, as, as a buyer and you're looking to target, you know, there you have to understand what you're really looking for. Uh, some buyers really want to have the management team and the founders stick around and work in a combined entity moving forward. Um, and that's been successful if that's part of your criteria um, and you can qualify for that criteria early. Others are looking to, um, you know, maybe run the business um, and have the ownership leave. Um, and we call that selling out. We often use the term selling in or selling out. And I think as a buyer, you have to have clarity about where you want, what do you want to buy? You want to buy a situation where the leadership sticks it up, sticks in and becomes part of your leadership team and, you know, sticks around and uh, hangs around, does their thing, or do you want them to phase out? It changes the way you profile the businesses and qualify the businesses. And I think there's no right or wrong answer there. It's just you have to have clarity about what you're looking for and, you know, have um, a real, a real clear understanding about, you know, what, what, uh, how that, they will fit into your organization. Now, I'll tell you that sometimes what happens is sellers kind of change their mind, right? They may have a, originally thought, hey, I want to sell out of my business. I want to retire and move on. Yet, they don't really have any infrastructure to do that. Um, or they're in the due diligence process after you get an agreement on that. They might say, you know, I thought about it and like I'm pretty young and I don't really want to retire and don't want to do anything else. So maybe uh, maybe we could find a role and I'll stick it out. Not atypical, I guess, for it to occur that way. Sometimes people change their mind. Um, but uh, I, I would I would certainly recommend that you have clarity as a buyer as to what you're looking for because it'll shape how you build your list. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So if we have our, our, our geo, we have our size, we've got our technology, we kind of have a management team. The the other thing when you're starting to build a list, I would say there's kind of two things I look at it. One, really have a good idea of, of you know, who is that ideal fit. So one example, and uh, that one example can be the stocking horse of what you go after. But then the other thing I'd say is build your list of what doesn't fit. So what would be a company? For for example, uh, we worked with a client uh, this week where uh, they have a great offshore delivery model. And so part of their non-hits with someone with a that already has an offshore dev 
uh, facility. So uh, it starts in there way and you know, who doesn't fit. Um, now, you, you know, you don't want to disqualify everything. Uh, so I'll put it this way. You still need to reach out to, for us, you know, we're reaching out to over a hundred companies to get, to get one deal done. So you can't have a, it's, it's very difficult to get a deal done if you only have 10 candidates. And so you know, I encourage people to, to broaden their horizons and, and understand, you know, what's out there. Uh, frankly, the best companies are not going to be for sale. And it's going to be hard. You're not going to find, you're typically not going to find companies listed on marketplaces or, or other processes. Now, we've got to tread a little lightly here. Uh, we represent amazing companies for sale all the time, and you may want to sell your own company at some point. So uh, it's not to say that they're not for sale is, is exclusionary, but uh, it's difficult to find someone that is just publicly listed. You know, Mike, when you think about that company that, that isn't for sale, or pardon me, a company that is for sale, what, what are the things that you know, may preclude you from putting them on a list? You know, why, why don't you want to target someone that uh, has kind of, that, that's got the for sale sign up? Right, so probably the biggest reason is because they probably don't fit all of your criteria for acquisition. So what oftentimes happens is they'll say, yeah, I want to go grow through acquisition. And you don't take the time uh, we've seen this sort of malady uh, or this problem sort of play out many times. You don't take the time to be as granular about the ideal prospect as we've been articulating in this podcast. And you become opportunistic and you say, wow, if I can just buy the company right or if I can this or I can that, then, you know, it'll be great. It'll be the easy button. I can just get it done and everything is going to be sunshine and moonbeams where that really isn't how it goes. Um, what ends up happening is you try to force fit the deal because the deal is available and it doesn't check all the boxes of your ideal prospect profile, first of all. So that's why we say the ideal company is probably the one that is not for sale because it should fit all of the criteria um, if you put them on the list or at least have a high suspicion that they're going to be fitting all the criteria. And when you reach out to them and have a conversation, you can confirm that. So we think that's a huge issue. I think the other issue is that um, oftentimes when a company is represented, it's been optimized for sale. It's been, uh, they're asking for a premium. And a seller who's not for sale may not be that way. And so, you know, purely the economics of the deal may mean that you'll have to pay up because there's competitors for that transaction. Um, there's, for all the reasons you would want to be represented for sale when it comes time to sell your business, um, certainly having professional representation to sell your business uh, typically means that a, a higher price is going to be paid uh, for all kinds of reasons because you've applied a lot of rigor to preparing to sell that business, sometimes for years prior to the listing. And you've also engaged a professional to help you find uh, things like owner addbacks and things to EBITDA and, you know, position the business to optimize value. And, and generally when you buy a company that's not for sale, none of those things have occurred. And so you have the opportunity to maybe bring that expertise to that firm uh, post-transaction to get those synergies 
and optimizations um, as a sweetener in a deal that you do that may not be for sale. Yep, yeah, I, I, I totally, totally agree. Um, Mike, I, that's kind of the question. That's the when we lead uh, someone through the process, those are the big ones to to hit. Uh, and that's uh, that's really what all I've got for today. Anything else you want to cover, or anything else uh, to wrap this up? Yeah, I think the only you know the only thing I would say is that you know doing this work on your own is tough, right? You know, it takes twelve or more attempts to talk to someone, uh, to talk to the CEO of a business that's not for sale about an M and A transaction, typically. Um, typically, it takes a much bigger pool of targets that are in your ideal prospect profile than you would think. Uh, Ryan alluded to that. It's typically a hun over 100. Um, it's typically, a, it's a ton of work to find, sort, and qualify these opportunities and then ultimately determine if they're a fit and move them through the process. It's a, it's a big reason why buyers go to firms like Revenue Rocket to hire us to help them um, because it takes a team of very knowledgeable people to do the research, to do the outreach, uh, to do the valuation work, to construct the mechanics of the deal, to work through due diligence and ultimately get a transaction done. Um, and it's why the statistics are rather dire if you're going to roll your own. I don't want to completely you know take the wind out of your sails but there's only about a one percent chance that you're going to successfully get a deal done if you attempt to do this all on your own um, the success rates go way up in general for advisors north of 50 percent uh, and our success rates are actually north of 90 percent so your your ability to transact a deal um, the your odds of transacting a deal without an advisor are actually pretty low, even if you do everything right. Um, and so there isn't there is certainly a business case to bring an advisor into this process as well. So with that, agreed. Yeah, yeah. I think with that we'll tie a ribbon on. Just um, yeah, for this week uh, in December 2020 uh, for our Shoot the Moon podcast. And we wish everyone a happy holiday season and uh, look forward to connecting on our, our next podcast in 2021. Take care.